This is Dr. Sean Canone, and welcome to this week's podcast, where we will be looking further into this issue of medical legal risk in the long-term care post-acute care setting. And this week, we're going to focus primarily on issues related to falls and fractures. If you look historically at lawsuits in the long-term care post-acute care setting over the last 20 years, by far the most common cause of litigation are fractures. And these fractures generally occur from falls, but not always. And it's not generally the fall or the fracture that leads to the immediate cause of death in a patient, but rather it's the fracture that tends to set off a cascade of clinical decline in a patient and sometimes can can take as few as a few weeks, but oftentimes maybe a year or more. Lawsuits relating to falls and fractures can really make up as much as 75% of long-term care litigation. So if you want to protect yourself, limit your risk reduce your likelihood of being pulled into litigation, then addressing issues related to fall and fracture risk are crucial for the long-term care post-acute care clinician. So what we're going to do today is look first at the impact of osteoporosis in the long-term care setting and then look at some ways to identify and reduce the risk of fractures in our patients. We probably will not have time today to look into treatment considerations for osteoporosis, but we'll take that up in a future episode. So first, just a few facts and figures on osteoporosis. First, note that osteoporosis is a skeletal disorder characterized by compromised bone strength and an increased risk of fracture. As we further parse out bone strength within this definition, note that bone strength is really a reflection of two things, bone density and bone quality. The reason why this is important to note is because there are compounds like fluoride which have been shown to greatly increase bone density, but they actually make bones more brittle because the bone quality is very poor. And so when we're measuring things like bone mineral density to look at the adequacy of the treatments that we're giving to patients, note that bone density is a good predictor, but it's not the only thing. There are issues related to bone quality that cannot be measured as easily on that type of testing. With regard to prevalence, especially in females, although remember that osteoporosis can occur in males as well, but when we look in the general population, 70% of females who are over the age of 80 have osteoporosis, and 85% of females over the age of 85 in the long-term care setting have osteoporosis. And you're probably well aware of this. The two most common types of fracture coming from osteoporosis are vertebral and hip fractures. There are two vertebral fractures for every one hip fracture, and although we think of hip fractures as carrying the highest morbidity and mortality, there's actually significant data in vertebral fractures that paint a very poor picture prognostically for a patient. As a matter of fact, having a vertebral fracture actually gives you the same future risk of hip fracture as having a previous hip fracture. So patients with vertebral fractures are really signaling to us that there are bad things to come. In an interesting study done many years ago, there was actually a post-fracture mortality that was measured after vertebral or hip fractures. And when looking at the age-adjusted relative risk of death, there was actually a higher risk in patients with vertebral fractures than in those with hip fracture. So we have to be very cautious not to just focus on the hip but also to look out for patients who are having vertebral fractures as this is a signal, again, that there are potentially poor outcomes ahead. Now, when we look at 
osteoporosis in the long-term care context, specifically in nursing home settings. There was a study done many years ago of 1,400-plus female nursing home residents in Maryland with a mean age of 85. They did actual bone mineral density testing on the entire population and found a mean T-score of negative 3.5, which is severe osteoporosis, and 71% of these patients had a history of falls. Over an 18-month follow-up period, they saw 223 osteoporotic fractures in 180 residents, and 70% of these fractures resulted from a fall. Add to this that within the study, they did an analysis of treatment for osteoporosis and found deplorable rates of treatment with agents such as calcium, vitamin D, or some other specific osteoporotic treatment regimen. And so I think we've done a better job over the years of addressing these needs, but still there is much under-treatment of osteoporosis in the long-term care setting. So what is the recipe for fracture litigation in the long-term care setting? First off, it's partially environmental. There's limited staffing. These are environments of restraint reduction. There's polypharmacy that sometimes adds to fall risk. Then there are patient factors. Patients are very frail, elderly, debilitated, severely osteoporotic many times, and often they have cognitive impairment, which decreases safety awareness and and memory. Third, there are family expectations around these diagnoses and prognosis, and oftentimes they are under the impression that we can prevent falls and fractures. And sometimes we've misled families by having falls prevention plans leading them to think that we can prevent falls. So it's important to note that because of the environment, because of the patients who are in front of us, that reducing the risk of falls, reducing the risk of fractures, is the right nomenclature. I'd like to share with you now a case that I reviewed many years ago. This was a lawsuit that involved a 90-year-old female with dementia who bumped her leg on a wheelchair during transfer. She had no leg pain after bumping it. She was able to participate fully in therapies throughout the day. She went to dinner and ate fine. She went to bed, fell asleep on time, no issues. And during the night developed severe leg pain. The x-ray was done and showed a spiral tib-fib fracture of the right leg. This was the same leg that she had bumped on the wheelchair, but a spiral fracture generally comes from a rotational force And this is not consistent with what happened when she bumped her leg on the wheelchair during this transfer. So the litigation came claiming negligent care, pain, and suffering. And the defense was very interesting because this was at a time when we were just starting to eliminate side rails from beds. And in this particular situation, the family had demanded that side rails be put up. And what probably happened in the way that the case Uh, played out was that the patient got her leg into the side rails and rotated during the night and fractured the leg in that way. So I bring up this case just to show first off that fractures can occur very easily in the long-term care setting because of the population that we have, but also that not all fractures come from falls. Sometimes we've seen hip fractures occur where a patient turns, they pivot, the hip fractures, and then they're lowered to the ground or they fall to the ground. And oftentimes it's thought that, well, it was the fall that caused the fracture when it's probably likely in many cases that the fracture is what causes the fall. So what are we to do? There are really two ways to reduce fracture risk. One is to reduce the risk of falls. 
that will reduce the risk of fracture in many of those cases, 70% of which are related to falls. And the second way to reduce fracture risk is to treat osteoporosis, to try to make the bones stronger. So let's take the first part there, reducing the risk of falls. First, it's important to understand the patient's history of falls. Obviously, if they've had that history, the likelihood of a future fall is much higher. We should also avoid the improper use of restraints. Like I mentioned in that case, the use of side rails can actually cause more risk for fractures than having the side rails off or putting the bed in a lower position or even on the floor. Environmental hazards. Be cautious, obviously, about things like throw rugs or things that could be in the way of a patient moving uh, in their room, transferring from bed to chair or from chair to bathroom. We should also take into account any sensory impairments, especially visual impairments. Some patients need glasses to get around safely or on medications that can cause blurred vision, so making sure there's adequate lighting can be very important. Underlying medical conditions. There are many, many medical conditions that increase the risk for falls, and so treating those medical conditions can actually reduce a patient's risk for falling. And then obviously medication risk, modifying medications that carry an inherent risk of sedation or somnolence or orthostatic hypotension. So what about medical conditions? What medical conditions increase a patient's risk for falling? What's been shown in studies over the years, things like dementia, Parkinson's, a history of stroke, depression, osteoporosis itself, incontinence, orthostatic hypotension, deconditioning or debility, cardiac abnormalities, insomnia, pain, psychosis, all of these things can increase a patient's risk for falling. And therefore, we should look at them and try to treat them to the best of our ability, but use medications that carry as little inherent risk of falling within themselves as possible. With regard to medication risk, we've talked about this at length on the podcast, so drugs with anticholinergic side effects, with antihistaminic side effects, anything that sedates or creates somnolence. The antihypertensives can increase risk for falling, anticonvulsants, some antidepressants, obviously opioid analgesics or benzodiazepines, diuretics can increase a patient's risk for falling, and the one that maybe many of us think of right off the bat, antipsychotics, which we'll talk about a little bit more. It's very interesting when you look at the atypical antipsychotics and think about falls risks. When I began my career in the long-term care setting, I remember falls risk assessments being done that would give a point of risk to any patient who was on an antipsychotic medication. And while that seems logical that no, no matter what the antipsychotic is, it must be putting the patient at a higher risk for falls, that actually was not substantiated in the literature Specifically, when looking at atypical antipsychotics used in patients with dementia-related psychosis, there were several studies done in the late 90s and early 2000s that looked at efficacy of these medications for that type of application. And although we frown upon the use of antipsychotics in patients with dementia-related psychosis today, there's a lot more to the story that has gotten lost over the years, specifically coming out of research that was done in the late 1990s and early 2000s. One of these studies was done by a physician by the name of Katz. It was a 12-week study looking specifically at Risperdal. 
And at the time the study came out, I remember that in the nursing home setting, the falls risk assessment would be done on every patient. And if they were on an antipsychotic, whether a traditional or an atypical, they automatically were placed at a higher risk for falls because of that medication being on board. Well, Dr. Katz's study involved 625 patients. The average age was 82.7 years old. 73% of these patients had Alzheimer's disease and two-thirds were women. He looked at comparison groups of Risperdal at three different doses, 0.5 milligrams once a day, 1 milligram once a day, 2 milligrams once a day, and then a placebo group. Now, the study set out to find the most effective dose for Risperdal in treating psychosis of Alzheimer's disease, and it found that at 1 milligram per day, this was the most effective dose. And the logical thought at that point was if you're truly reducing psychosis, then you should reduce the risk of falls because psychosis is a risk factor for falling in patients with dementia. And sure enough, at that dose of one milligram per day, there was a statistically significant reduction in falls rates. And this is what Dr. Katz found. In the placebo group, 22% of patients fell over the course of the trial. At the 1 milligram Risperdal dose, 12.7% of patients fell during the trial. And while there were four fractures in the placebo group, there were none at the 1 milligram Risperdal dose range. And this is not meant to be an advertisement for Risperdal. And I'm not telling you to use an atypical antipsychotic every time a patient has psychosis in Alzheimer's disease. But I do think it's important for us to realize as providers that we can help patients with their medical conditions, we can help to control disease states, but we have to do it in a smarter way, prescribing medications that carry the least amount of inherent falls risk. And you might say, well, wouldn't this be the profile for any atypical antipsychotic? And the answer was no. When we look at medications like Seroquel, like Zyprexa in the literature, we find very different falls risk profiles in a similar population of dementia patients. As a matter of fact, there was one head-to-head -head study done between Risperdal and Zyprexa a few years later by a couple of my business associates, Harlan Martin and Michael Slick, which showed a two and a half times increased risk of falls and multiple falls for patients who were taking olanzapine, which is Zyprexa, versus those taking Risperdal. So as we conclude this first part of the podcast, talking about the risk of falls and fractures and their link to long-term care litigation, our take-home message today is make sure you understand a patient's risk for falling. Look at their different disease states and medical conditions. Treat them, manage them to the best of your ability. Try to always use medications that carry the lowest inherent risk for falls. Avoid medications that sedate, that create somnolence, that can create orthostatic hypotension, and as always, reduce the risk of anticholinergic or antihistaminic side effects in the medications that we prescribe. In our next episode, we'll come back and look at the second part of this approach to reducing the risk of fractures and litigation in long-term care by looking at appropriate diagnosis and treatment of osteoporosis. So we've looked now at the reduction of falls risk, let's look at reducing the risk of fractures. Until then, keep up the great work and look forward to talking to you again next time.